What's up, Puggy fans? It's 2022. Finally, race day is back, and so is Shoot the Shit, your favorite Buggy podcast. It's the only Buggy podcast that kind of has to be your favorite. But I digress. We've got tons of amazing stories from all angles of this wild, wacky, wonderful sport of Buggy told by the people who make it happen. That is you. All sorts of slices of this beautiful community. So strap in your safety harness, get ready to go as we shoot the shit. Welcome back, everybody. Another delightful episode of Shoot the Shit for you this week. We like to tell you stories from all across the history of Buggy. You know, last week we gave you a little primer on the history of Buggy. Uh, And we're going to go a little bit old school this week as well, taking it back 50 years, 1972. The brothers of FICAP put together a buggy and a team that was able to upend a decades-long dynastic battle between Pika and Beta. We talked with members of that original team about what it took to kind of make this new innovative buggy, what that team culture was like, what buggy was like in the 70s, and really fascinating how things have changed. Also, to me, just amazing to hear the camaraderie that still exists between these guys and how they can remember so much of their race days and details when I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. Uh, you know, I asked them what was the secret to their success, and they said, oh, we're a bunch of car guys. So here we go. We're going to listen to a bunch of car guys talk about Buggy back in the 70s. Here we go. Okay, so I'm Gary Schuchner. I was a Buggy co-chair at FICAP in 70, 71, and 72 seasons. Yeah, I'm, I'm Dave Gamrit. Uh, I worked on Streak, uh, sort of as a mechanic and uh, running the uh, chase car for free rolls. And I made the design presentation for Streak for 1970, 71, and 72. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Evan Hutchison, and I had the privilege of driving Streak for four years straight from uh, my freshman to senior year would have been the uh, races uh, from 71 through 74. Had the good fortune along with my team to win twice in that run and uh, were there for the design wins uh, that we uh, also had simultaneously. And uh, I actually served as buggy chairman, co-chairman with a good friend of mine for my junior and senior year, 73, 74. Let's see, last but not least, (laughs) I'm Ray Paul. Um, I I did a bunch of stuff on buggy and it's so long ago, I kind of forget, but I did the design presenta- presentation for 73 when we won. Um, I remember filing and drilling a whole lot of pieces of large pieces of aluminum that uh, nobody seemed to have, uh, you know, mills and other things that you typically use. So we had files and uh, there was much filing. And then I was the wheel guy for uh, 72 and 73. And I don't know. I think that uh, the that change in wheels from hot stuff to uh, solvent uh, swollen. I hope I'm not giving anything away, but I would guess in the last 50 years, someone else has figured out that you you, you swell <laughs> the the Zobox Derby wheels with uh, uh, solvent, and uh, so I did that for last two years of my tenure. I don't want to break your bubble, Ray, but nobody uses the wheels we ran 50 years ago. <laughs> Damn. Damn. If I, if I can ask, what, what do the, anybody know what they do run right now? They're little wheels. 
Little yeah, wheels. I, yeah, I mean, I'm not super privy or up on the technical stuff, so I'm not the best uh, resource on this. But I think a lot of it is even just different kind of synthetic stuff. They get kind of really technical, and it's not mm-hmm. as much kind of off the off the shelf as you will. But yeah, I, we can address that later in the conversation. So just to get started, is the co-chairman with me was John Kilgore, and his older brother, Tom Kilgore, was the FICAP uh, co-chair in my freshman year, along with a, a guy named Ray, Ray LeClaire. And they had built a buggy, and I believe in their junior year, that was uh, fairly lightweight, but crashed. And the driver was not seriously hurt, but I'm sure he probably still carries scars uh on his forehead today the the windshield was the leading edge of the buggy i remember that yes wasn't that the gray ghost gray ghost yeah so it was a plexiglass windshield when he hit the hay bales it went in and hit his forehead so we we needed to build a new buggy the roads back then were extremely bumpy i don't know if you've heard this from other people but just potholed and bumps and paths. the roads right now (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> extremely bumpy and full of potholes so yeah um at least i last i was probably there when were we there last day about three years ago before covid yeah. the roads were in much better shape yeah, they i think they just repaved that year but i that being said i'm sure they were probably they still were way worse fun. back then yeah um, my neck and my chin still can't t- t- testify to how rough things were back in the day uh <laughs> My chiropractor is uh, actually accused me of being in a serious car crash, which actually, luckily, didn't has never happened to me. But uh, buggy driving sure did, and lots of free rolls on the back hills, or rather, push practices on the back hills, beat the snot out of your neck. Well, the the condition of the roads, I think, was one of the driving forces that uh, took us to independent suspension on the buggies because the. Before Streak and before Gray Ghost was built and crashed, the two buggies that we had were Snorpus and Shamrock. And Shamrock was a solid axle buggy. And uh, I guess the guys before us had designed the independent suspension for Snorpus. And that's what we basically copied and used on Streak because uh, there was much less ener- energy dissipation when the wheels, when, when one wheel would hit the pothole versus a solid axle. Yeah. So, that was kind of, a, and then the other thing, the house had a tradition of, I'd, I'd say, fine finishes and competing in the design competition for the buggies. So it was really important for us to have really well-made buggies. One of the issues with Snorpus, which was a really very good buggy, but it was heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it streak, we tried to lighten it up. Um, streak, and I, I don't know what they're doing now with the pre-peg materials on the buggies but back then these were all hand layups and we didn't know or the technology to make use vacuum bagging wasn't around so these were all hand layups uh not on reverse mold so hand layups and we basically you know beat the excess resin out of the buggy by using when we laid it up using brushes we just and that's still a common technique uh, in home-built airplanes today, if people do kit airplanes, they'll use vacuum bagging. But for a lot of the smaller pieces, they basically just use resin and beat, beat the resin out 
um, mm. brushes. So that's what we did. And then there was a lot of sanding. Um, the, the buggy came out sophomore year heavy, a lot heavier than what we wanted. Um, for junior year, believe it or not, we basically cut the corners off the buggy, reduced the suspension bushings from, I think, a four-inch bushing to a two-inch bushing, and remolded large sections of that buggy to, to lighten it up. But really, in reality, and I'm sure it's, it still is today, it's basically all tire technology. And we, we just used heat sophomore year, but we were real interested in knowing what Pika did, actually. Pika and... Um, Sigma Nu. Yeah, Sigma Nu and Beta all rolled faster than us. With One of the things we did figure out is if we just stretched the rubber, uh, we could get uh, faster times. The other thing we did is we went to Firestone and they made special rubber for us. And it was actually a Super Bowl formulation. Um, that helped quite a bit also. Uh, but then we figured out, probably with Ray, to use solvents, and we were using gasoline and hexane. If we could afford hexane, we would buy hexane from the chemical company. Otherwise, we would soak the tires in gasoline. So we had drums filled with gasoline in the basement of our fraternity house. Uh, we <laughs> kept it out of the furnace room, though. We were trying to be safe. <laughs> well, and but but one of my... Um... One of my key memories of, of college was when I almost died. <laughs> we almost all died. So we got this 25-gallon drum of gasoline, and not to mention any names, because I don't want to embarrass his mother, Mrs. Gilfoyle. But, <laughs> but Pete walked in smoking a cigarette, and I, you know, I, I like I like panicked and you know, I said, get the fuck out of here. And so what he did was he threw it on the floor and stepped on it. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, because gasoline kind of lies in low and when it yes. blows up, it's because it filled the floor. But anyway, uh, I didn't die. No one else died. And uh, uh, but that is my that is my memory of gasoline. And I, I think Don Dietrich is the overall CMU um, buggy. I don't know. Safety, official safety chairman for safety while, chairman. Yeah. He went around and talked to everybody and said, hey, you guys aren't using solvents, are you? And he made, it made, it made us and everybody else move it out to the garage where, you know, you'd kill far fewer people when 25 gallons of gasoline went up. In the bottom of a fraternity house. Oh, um, yeah. and, and I think the other thing that was funny was we prepped the buggies. Uh, there were trucks for a while for some of the teams, but we prepped in tents uh, for for uh, free rolls and for the race, especially. So it wasn't too hard to figure out what we were using for wheels, because even if even if the vat wasn't there, the vapor sure as hell was. <laughs> so you, 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 could, uh, you could smell it on the start finish line for sure. And probably, or, or at the start line. And I imagine there was still a little bit left at the finish line <laughs> if you really wanted to uh, figure out how we were going so much more quickly. Well, we, uh, my recollection was we, we were still heating the wheels in 1971. Yes. And yeah, that's yeah, correct. 1970, rather. Yes. And it was, uh, it was when we discovered right before sweepstakes in 71 that soaking was a, was a far better approach to uh, reducing friction for the wheels. And it seems to me, I, I recall 
the 71 race, I thought we were very competitive on Friday and we made the mistake of re-soaking the wheels overnight for Saturday. Is that correct, Gary? Yeah, we blew, blew up two of our wheels. I, I remember that, like just big chunks of rubber coming off. Yeah, and we just, and we just didn't have any spare wheels. We, we couldn't afford all this stuff that we were trying to do. I think somewhere along the line, and I don't know who figured it out, might have, might have been me, but if you soaked them for a bit and then got them out of the liquid and let just let them sit in the vapor and kind of, um, I don't know, let it diffuse through and, and even itself out, that that stopped from blowing blowing things up. Well, didn't, Gary, didn't you have that bounce tester on the door of the uh, bucket room? So yeah, we did. A with how long to soak the wheels to optimize the uh, yes the, the um, resilience. Yeah, yep. And and, and the other was... thing I recall was that the, that we had people even a lower level job than what uh, Ray described for filing metal was the person that had to true the rubber wheels after they had been uh, swollen because oh, right. there were there were indentations to hold the reinforcing ring in the mold such that it wasn't a uniform thickness of uh, material all the way around. So you got these god awful looking expanded uh, uh, soapbox derby wheels that were literally two to three times the diameter or the original cross section. And then you just started to uh, grind them down. That was the drill press and the uh, sandpaper, of course. So most <laughs> of it ended up in someone's face. And uh, Mrs. Leg's son, Ernie, is uh, the one that I remember wearing the, wearing the most rubber on his face, also renowned for being uh, the best hill four pusher on campus. So somehow those two things were compatible. I guess it made him run faster too. It's interesting to just hear, you know, I, I think most of the interviews I've done uh, for, for this show so far have been post a lot of the new safety rules or whatever that came out in the, the late seventies. So it's definitely fascinating for me to just hear kind of, you know, what the culture was like preceding that. Like you mentioned, I know Pika was very good. Beta was very good. Sig knew, but kind of what was the competitive nature of the sport at that point? Where did you see yourselves? Uh, what was it like in terms of secrecy rivalries, just kind of paint a picture of what the world of buggy was like at this point. I say a lot of secrecy. So even I, we probably had well, Chuck Edney was probably the fastest till one pusher at the time, I would think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, if you have a heavier buggy or you don't roll as well, you're not going to win. So there was just to me for the fraternity, I would say buggy was like the number one competitive thing that we did. I don't know. If yeah, it was it was it was very competitive. And as Gary said, very, very secret. I can remember Mike Stout having a, I don't know, 500 or 1,000 millimeter zoom lens taking pictures of Pika's wheel bearings yeah. as, as they were coming out of the tent and setting them down on the uh, on the start line. We ought to come back to wheel bearings at some point, but um, I just remember, for me anyway, buggy being kind of all-consuming. I'm, yeah. I, you know, I don't know Absolutely. whether it was filing i was filing or, or detailing the thing for design or whatever it was like man we got to win this and I, I i remember almost missing an exam because i'd stayed up 
I'd been been awake for like 36 hours. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but yeah. you know, it was like I I didn't do homework. I just did buggy, and and you know, I it was such a such a substantial part of my experience that I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I didn't, I didn't live in uh, on campus. I I commuted, and I I can remember. When we were building street, as Gary said, the laying up the fiberglass wasn't always the smoothest, didn't produce the smoothest result in terms of the buggy surface. If you if you had any any time between class at all, you just went down to the buggy room and started sanding. Yeah. And and there'd be four or five guys down there at any time sanding on different sections of the buggy just to get the surface perfectly smooth so that it would look uh, top notch for the design presentation. And I'll say too that the uh, competitiveness of it, Will, was just across the entire team too. So there was a huge effort and really represented here by the people that built and, and managed the technology part of the of the effort. But the push teams and the you know the drivers really put in an enormous amount of time training. Not just for, I mean, free roll was the glamour, you, you know, hey, six o'clock in the morning on Sunday, how great, you know, but, um, <laughs> but, but literally every night you would be on the hills, you know, usually nine, 10 o'clock at night with, uh, with the whole push team and you'd be running relays. If you could do it on the street, you would do it on the street. If you had to be on the sidewalk on hill one, you did it on the sidewalk and you would run that, you would be out there for hours and that was pretty much every night of the week. And um, and that went on as soon as the weather allowed you out there. So, uh, you know, the winning teams, it was it was true. What, what the guys have said here is it was pretty much all consuming. You did anything you could. And, um, and really that's why it was so incredibly rewarding to carry trophies at the end because yeah. there'd, been a, there'd been a lot of years ahead of that where the same effort had been in, in invested and um people hadn't cashed in they came really close so they were you know in it you know they did a good showing but to be in the front of the pack at the end of the day um that that first time we did it it was across the board it was it was very rewarding for everyone and it, and it took you know years and years of hard work yeah, so and, and, and that's uh, once we did it, it was so incredible to repeat. You know, that was the thing is to be able to do it again. It you know just overall incredibly uh, rewarding experience because boy, the work sure had gone into it. Even the fraternity rush, it's like Evan would be your number one catch, right? Because <laughs> Evan, Evan was like the smallest guy on campus that we could, right we could, we could rush. <laughs> well, and, and he was he was also a car guy, right? So. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was a, a short, uh, short trip from car guy to buggy guy, I think. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it, it was one of those things where you, I showed up, Ray happened to be a high school friend and, um, and, you know, casually put the arm on me. But boy, I'll tell you, the rest of the, the rest of the houses that had buggy efforts were, were all over. And, and, you know, as a short statured nerd, um, <laughs> it, it was, a, it was a, First time in my life that I would have considered that I was in high demand. It was, a, it was a, an interesting, uh, an interesting experience, and it was, it was like, what is this thing even? You know, there was no, there was no premonition. 
that you were about to enter this world of of crazy that was exact you were exactly cut out to be in the middle of it was splendid and the fact that i, I actually wrote an article that i found in a, a buggy book from 74 that i wrote about driving and i said there's been there's people that have two different reactions to a person inside a buggy it's either holy heck let me in there i want to i want to drive that or what the hell are you crazy you know it's one <laughs> of the two because because it doesn't make sense to a lot of people it looks so dangerous and crazy and to many of us it's like let me add it I, I couldn't wait and it was true to form it was fun as heck well to, to evan to evan's credit um he he was definitely a car guy and understood the the finer points of uh driving the correct line we had a guy that preceded evan charlie muskin for a number of years oh, who was okay. the same way and uh driving the chase car it was very rewarding working with people like this because you could explain to them how to set up the line for the corner at the bottom of the hill going into the chute, and they would understand. They would get it. And that enabled us to design the Ackerman steering effect on the buggies to optimize the turn in for that corner to minimize right. the scrub on the tires as it went through the corner. I have a quiz for people too here. Hold this up. Yeah. This, is, this is an important piece of buggy technology. Uh, happens to be the flag that my roommate, John Moore, used on the fourth parking meter from the end in front of Phipps Conservatory to uh, signal where, you know, a, a point where you could turn because when you're running in a buggy wheel, you can't see over the crown of the road when you're running down the gutter on the left side, it's way too high above, it's way above your head mm -hmm. to, to see the chute. So you needed something as a good good reference point. And to my, my roommate's credit, John was always there every time, no matter what. I never, <laughs> I never had the, the the unfortunate feeling of getting to the bottom of the hill and not having my reference point, right. um, which has been known to happen to people. And they, uh, one one of our buggies did go scooting across the Panther Hollow Bridge one time. Uh, so. Oh, that's right. I was driving chase car when that happened. That was that was Roger Peck driving yep. Snorkus. And a buggy, a buggy in front of him spun in the chute, and the and the chase car for that fraternity, and I don't remember who it was, obviously stopped, and Roger had nowhere to go uh, in terms of making the, the corner into the chute, so he just headed across the Panther Hollow Bridge, uh, and of course I'm not sure how fast we were rolling at that time. It was probably 30 miles an hour maybe at the at the bottom of that hill. But anyway, that the Panther Hollow Bridge was nothing but a series of potholes. And <laughs> that, buggy, that buggy was going sideways two or three times. And Gary's partner, John Kilgore, was riding with me in the chase car. And I pulled up alongside the buggy as uh, Roger was about halfway across the bridge. And John is yelling out the window, brakes, brakes. And I said, John, he's probably already thought of that. <laughs> and, and, and I must so, say that. That's what's I known. To, what I had to do is I had to drive ahead almost down to where the, the road turns into the parking lot for the museum, let John out, and he started running as fast as he could. And as Roger came by, he grabbed the push bar and brought him to a stop. <laughs> and, 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 and uh, well, that's what's known in, uh, in, in uh, legend is the pancake kitchen run 
Um, Roger just mentioned it the other week in a, in a note to us. Uh, that's when you run the buggy all the way down to uh, Forbes Avenue and and stop for pancakes. I don't I don't think the place is there anymore, but it was sort of a traditional <laughs> Sunday morning after free roll. You uh, you hit the pancake kitchen because most of us don't hadn't eaten real well over the weekend. Uh, and so, yeah, that's that that was the name for that's where that came from. And it was for real. He was he was pretty shook up, Roger, after that uh, that trip yeah. across the, to the minefield. Yeah, and just just to point out that I think Snorper still had the cable brakes at that time. Yeah, probably. That's, that's one of the reasons why they weren't very effective in slowing the buggy down because you really only needed them for the brake test at the end of the uh, at the end of the run, and that's probably one of the reasons why one of the reasons why we moved the hydraulic brakes on street. And I remember uh, what one night, and it, it must have been at least midnight. And there was, you know, it was uh, the night before a free roll. And I remember Gary and John uh, Kilgore, it was one of the older buggies. I don't even remember which one it was, but they said, why don't you work out a set of brakes for this thing for free roll tomorrow? <laughs> and so I went around, I found some bicycle pads and, and some, uh, you know, aluminum stock. And I made this thing up and it didn't work for shit. <laughs> Yeah. So that uh, I, I I failed at that uh, that effort, but uh, you know I was never I, I was a chemical engineer, not a mechanical engineer. So you, you gave yep. it, you gave the job to the wrong guy. You well, you I, were I, like Ray, you were a go guy, not a stop guy. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, you know, oh, just steer of... it well, steer it well. The you know it'll it'll slow down at some point. It, you know, get it going up a hill the, or something. The technology at the time, people were still using things like pieces of wood that they would rub on the ground. Yeah. Oh, right. I remember that lift the buggy up. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then for free rolls. So for the race day, they always had enough hay bales for free rolls. They never <laughs> even had enough hay bales for the shoot. They'd put like one every 10 feet or something like that. I mean, it was really pretty unsafe at the time. <laughs> yes. the, the, even I think is, during our tenures there of this group is it improved substantially they they made the the brake test a lot harder made some rules on how people were i mean a lot of people i don't even think a lot of buggies had had belts of any sort right right the the restraint the restraint requirement came after i had already driven a year or two yeah. people wore helmets or not and they weren't really hard helmets i wore a leather fighter pilot helmet the whole time real <laughs> you know it yep, would have done nothing that. in a head-on but you know it was it was more than zero and uh I, my plan was to not hit anything yeah. which uh <laughs> worked out yep that that the the advent of uh all of those safety rules uh spelled the spelled the death knell for what we termed the jag buggies of those eras because yeah. there, there were organizations that would just enter sweepstakes for fun in whatever kind of contraption they could put together. And I'm sure you've seen pictures, some of the more famous ones, like the bathtub painted like a Pittsburgh city police car. Right. Um, <laughs> and they, they had a big rubber foot that came out of the bathtub and that was their brake for the brake test. He would just shove that foot down through the bottom of the tub and it would, it would stop the buggy in the, <laughs> the brake test. And Delta Upsilon had the DU flying door which was literally a wooden door with four wheels on it. And the guy just sat on it. I mean, no helmets, nothing. 
And so that that whole era of people entering just for fun went away. Well, and and, and really the young man from DU who was seriously injured in uh, whatever my freshman or right before I got there, I don't know when it was, but uh, that was sort of the the school would have shut it down and said, we're not going to do it anymore. They, they said that and basically instilled the safety culture that started with uh, Don Dietrich and the yeah. others being the first safety chairman. And it was the first time, I think, Will, the important thing back to your point about secrecy and all, it was groundbreaking because here was a guy that belonged to a fraternity, senior level guy who was very well respected. And you, you realize that now when you hear the story of that, he was the first person who across the campus was able to be involved and inspect all the buggy efforts to be sure that those safety, um, those safety rules that were just written and approved by the school were, uh, were actually being enforced. And that was, you know, we would, we would hate the idea of the first one of them having been not been one of our guys, but it ended up after Don did it, the next guy that did it was Tommy Woods, whom I'm sure you know, and uh, Tom, mm -hmm was a safety chairman who as well was so, had such integrity, just like Don did, that everyone accepted the fact that this was necessary and he was going to do it. So it was a huge revolution in those, just those few years. And I, I did have a, a, one of the first interviews was with Tom Wood and kind of about that whole switch and the rules and, and the different teams protesting or, or not how you will, but I guess maybe to talk a little bit specifically about streak. Um, I know you had mentioned kind of the impetus was you had some of that initial technology with the buggy that, that crashed and, and had the incident with uh, the plexiglass coming in, but you know, what was sort of the input, was there really kind of an impetus or an aha moment of like, this is going to put us over the edge or was it sort of, you know, we're just building a new buggy. At what point did you kind of know you had something special going on there? I think it was more of a, uh... We needed a new buggy because uh, mm -hmm. we basically had two. We had Snorpus and Shamrock. Shamrock was the one with, which was a glow, glorified soapbox derby, basically. Mm -hmm. Act wasn't high and um, never rolled particularly well. Um, so we needed a new buggy. And I, I, I think the, the overall design was kind of influenced by the cars of the time, like the, the Jaguar XKE, the like Corvettes and Ferraris of the time. Yeah. Um, I was just on the freeway the other day and there was a Jaguar I-Pace, which is the Jaguar EV. And it uses the same form, essentially, that, that the buggy had and the Jaguar XKE has, a lot of the same form in it. I, I, I think it just kind of mirrored the technology and the styling of the time. And what we really were after was was... The, the suspension and the design kind of revolves around getting the buggy very low and having this independent suspension just because the roads were so bad. And, um, and small and small and light. I mean, it was light, yeah. considerably smaller than Snorpus, shorter and uh, lighter and less girth. It was it was really a petite buggy compared to the two that we had prior. Yeah, that's cool. We, were, we had Evan finally. <laughs> he's about the only one that could fit in it exactly i mean streak was such a breakthrough design because of how low it is when you look at it in cross section you think no one could ever fit in that bucket. Right. and and evan was the only one really yeah. that, that well, could fit in there and that and that enabled us to design the buggy 
to make it as attractive as it was because it was clearly uh, a breakthrough in, in, in design in terms of appearance. Yeah. Well, and, I remember it, it was driven my, uh, the year before I arrived, it had a year under its belt as a competitive uh, buggy and it was driven by Chuck Falcone that I, I recall his name. He was, he's the one that kind of took me under his wing and showed me how to drive or talked about what it was like. And uh, Chuck was, I think, still growing, unfortunately. So he, he, <laughs> there, was, there was no more room for Chuck. Uh, and, and so he, he literally outgrew. To, he was in it freshman year. I don't know. He, he to this day, doesn't, my, my brother, prior to my freshman year, I don't know how he did it because he was significantly taller than I was. And I know the guys had threatened, uh, threatened him that they were going to cut his feet off. Uh, you know, he's cut the legs off at the ankle. <laughs> and uh, and I saved him from that fate, you know. I I, uh, I because <laughs> because uh, Chuck was quickly forgotten. But you know, the fact is, it was stranded for a number of years after me because it was too damn small. But it was, you know, but it because it was small, it was a lot lighter and uh, you know, and quicker than uh, than some of the bigger stuff. It was way faster than everything we had with pretty much the same technology. Mm. Yeah, the the designs at the time were uh there were there were a couple houses like ours that were using unibody fiberglass construction but we were the only one that had uh fully independent suspension i think with with uh with the unibody construction i'm pretty sure pikas were solid axles yeah. yeah yeah that's correct and, and beta of course had the aluminum pan with the fiberglass shell uh over over top of it so we were we were kind of leading edge in terms of uh following the, the current philosophy, and this was one of, some of the pitch that I used in the design presentation, we were following the, the current trend of Formula One mm -hmm. pre-car construction in, in using the uh, monocoque fiberglass shells. <clears throat> and we reinforced that. I believe, Gary, you can, there was this foam called cellophane that was extremely strong in compression. Yeah, and we we put those sort of side beams in the side of street, and uh, I think there's some up in the nose. Yeah, and, and that was driven on on two things, as I recall. Number one, it it was being strong in compression. It provided extra protection in the event of an of an accident for the driver, and it and secondly, it, it gave some structural integrity to the shell, which enabled us to make street as thin as it is, as narrow as it is, and as light as it is. And that I think really helped its performance. The other thing were the, I don't know, the Jaguar knockoff wheels. And that, because uh, I, I know you mentioned we never got brakes right, right. until we had those. Yeah. And the other, those made it really easy to uh, do heating or manage um, uh, the solvent process. Right. And so, and they were also beautiful and the design judges loved them. Yeah. And uh, so I think that that was, for me, that was one of the huge leaps. Yeah, because we could, it was, it was really hard to set up the brakes, particularly what we had been doing historically was, and I think the other houses, a lot of them too, is the brake discs were attached to the soapbox derby wheels. Right. So kind of had to take the brakes apart to put the wheels on and off, which took time and the setup was difficult. And at that time, like now, I assume there's a there's a lot of like 
bicycle hydraulic bicycle brakes you can use in singing. Right. Back then, it was just the, the single pull or double pull caliper brakes that you would find on cheaper bikes now, I guess. And we finally went to go-kart brakes. We found some go-kart brakes, mm -hmm. but it was very difficult to find brakes. We had tried, um, and Ray LeClaire and Tom had tried this, was to make that actually make our own brakes, which was kind of a failure because it was hard to uh, lead those brakes. It was, it was more. It was more than a failure. Yeah. Uh, Gary, <laughs> you'll remember. You'll remember being in the design presentation in 1970, a street <laughs> debut, where I was pitching the the uh, the advanced technology of the buggy and the suspension and the and the hydraulic brake system that we had designed while brake fluid was leaking on the buggy. <laughs> yeah. we, didn't, we didn't place in design that year. Yeah. <laughs> and and ruined, ruined the gym floor, probably putting yeah, brake fluid on the finish. <laughs> I did actually have one question I meant to ask a little bit earlier for you, Evan. Just given I always find these things interesting in that, right? You were so hotly recruited, like you as a person were key to the design. Of streak was there a factor in particular that made you choose FICAP over you know other houses having been you know such a, a top level recruit or what have uh, you? Yeah, um, yeah, I actually thought about that in preparation for today because it's been a hell of a long time ago. But <laughs> there were there were some guys that were I, I felt close to in other houses, but they were they ended up being the enemy, right? As mm -hmm. uh, as things have worked right. out, and you know, and you don't look back. But but the um, probably the closest competitors for my affections were the beta guys. Um, super glad I didn't do that in retrospect. And really, uh, I'll say that the overall uh, two I guess two things overall were would swung the deal for me as, as such. And I just felt super comfortable this, with this group of crazy guys that I ended up spending the next four years with. They were. It was a real neat group of people. Um, one of the one of the coolest things about the house at the time was that it was it was so, everybody was so different. It was a menagerie kind of a place, not a not a monoculture. Hell, we were a Catholic fraternity, and I didn't even know it. Uh, and so <laughs> yeah, right. I was a you know I mean it it wasn't what the place was about. You know, we had Jewish guys and we had, I mean, it was just about having good people that all kind of fit together. So the chemistry of the, of the, of the brothers at the time was, was really positive, still was the whole time we were there. We were kind of the nice guy house. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> right. We, we, we said, you know, not that we were boy scouts, but we were kind of like boy scouts. But the thing was, there was it wasn't a uh, you got to all look like us, you got to dress like us. It was a it was a real just a real menagerie mm -hmm. of uh, of people, and and because of that, you know, we had people in all different majors, all different. You know, they're all over the place now. Some of them having done amazing things in their lives that you can't even believe because you knew them when they were just puppies and they were not going anywhere as far as you can see. <laughs> I mean, you know. It, it was I think a, one, of the, one of the reasons that uh, we were able to succeed in that era is because we used the various talents in the house that everybody had. Yeah, they were, they were recognized as uh, somebody could paint the buggy, somebody could machine uh, some aluminum, somebody was a chemical engineer that knew about soaking the wheels. 
Uh, I remember Mike Drozdak, who was the buggy chairman before you, I guess, Gary, re recruiting me to pitch, the, pit, make the design pitch. Yeah. And I said, well, why do you? And he said, well, weren't you a debater in high school? I said, yeah. <laughs> and you're the guy that's going to go in and sell this thing to the judges. You know, one thing I wanted to uh, sort of weave back to is I think one of the reasons we were successful is that we had a really strong car culture, racing yeah. culture in the house. You know, Gary talked about the design of the XKE and and Dave Gamerin has a picture of an old Formula One car sitting behind him and everybody subscribed to car and driver. And yeah. Evan had an understanding of, you know, the line and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Evan, Evan is still part of the, and Dave also part of the car culture. So Dave, Evan had a, what was the Porsche that you own? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've had a, a, some good fortune with my hobby. I've owned a, a Maserati for a really long time mm. that actually my friend Dave Gamrit here was <laughs> uh, was responsible for setting me onto it because he wanted to buy it, but couldn't afford it and the uh, Lamborghini Espada the guy had at the same time. So he asked me to buy it and hold it for <laughs> a year. If I didn't, If I didn't want to keep it, he'd buy it from me uh back you know when he had the money together for it and uh here it is uh 42 years later i've still got it uh but but as well they, uh gary mentioned i had a chance in my hobby to pick up a car that was that actually looks a lot like streak in person it's a, it was a carbon fiber 962 porsche that was uh a very special car uh, un, unused uh highly refined um basically race car for the street, one of seven built and uh, one of six remaining and, and basically owned it as an investment for a few years and uh, was able to display it at uh, vintage races and meet all the all of my childhood heroes, uh, race drivers and sports announcers in sports car racing. It's just always been a love of mine and I uh, love working on them. And, uh, and I just, I like looking at them, I like driving them. It's uh, it's been a really long, lifelong hobby for me. Well, there's there's one uh, maybe unique thing that we did when we were developing the buggies. And I'm not sure if Street was was involved in this. Gary, you would know more than I, but I can remember somebody pointing out that Interstate 79 had not been completed yet. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. And and so we went out one Saturday morning and we rolled these buggies down a section of I down a hill on I-79 yep. that, that had been completed. And we did, we were there for like five or six hours with oh, yeah. tires. We were and, testing yeah. wheels and other yeah. um, that, that road was basically uh, all done, but wasn't open because the bridge needed to be, uh, they needed to adjust the, the, the approach by several feet. They had missed it um, coming through <laughs> the valley, two different contractors and it, and it didn't line up. It was, it was, uh, it was like one of those deals where you drill a tunnel from either side of the mountain <laughs> right. and you don't get it. And so that, that, that road stood unused and the guys knew it was there. And so we drove around the barrels, uh, had the, had the, <laughs> buggies in the back of the van and uh, we could cold drop them there without any pushes or anything it was such a long hill and it was steep so uh, you could have a good long run down the hill and time it with different different setups on the wheels and the police did stop by right the, the yeah police, yeah they they couldn't believe they didn't have a motor in it, it was, <laughs> right. once they figured out there was no motor in it they were they were good with us 
Right. I feel like it's probably yep. so surprising at that point. They can't even be yeah. mad as much as confused. Uh, Will, that's a perfect example of the lengths that we would go to mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. developing the technology for street because we were testing the rubber, rubber, uh, uh, the pliability of the rubber and the, we were testing wheel bearings. We were testing suspension settings. And when you're out there for hours, you can, you can really get a lot done. And especially nobody knew we were out there. There were no betas or pikas around. So we could, we could do anything we wanted. No, that's, that's all really, really fascinating stuff. I mean, for me, one of my favorite parts of doing this whole podcast is just to talk and see the different cultures and the way they kind of coalesce together and but but cool no so we we kind of covered a, a number of things i wanted to talk about i guess maybe get into a little bit if we if you have any race day memories you know especially that first year that streak won how are you feeling going into it i know right the final finish was pretty close between you and pika um after all was said and done and measured so maybe take me through that day or that truck weekend and and some of the uh kind of feelings and that experience of finally getting that first win i was so tired i'm so tired on race day i can't remember anything just you know be, be, before evan gets into the details of getting into the buggy and getting the pushers ready and all of that i i remember that because we because we had made the mistake the previous year of over soaking the tires, we we had done probably a year's development program on those wheels, and so going into that race day, we were we were pretty confident that we had the wheels optimized for, for that course, and then it was just going to come down to the, the push team and, and Evans driving to determine if we we could win. But I know as being sort of the mechanic on the buggy. Uh, we felt that the buggy was ready. Yeah, well, almost. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't, I don't, uh, a fellow named Frank uh, from Columbia that uh, overused. Frank, that? Frank Garland. Frank Garland, yes, who, who, te- who overused marijuana. Um, <laughs> the night before, the night before the race, uh, he was responsible for uh, setting up the brakes. And so, we're in the tent and, you know, it's like ready to carry the thing out. We realized that the rear wheel wouldn't spin because <laughs> he'd, he'd, I don't, I forget what he did, but he did it. And so we had to take the whole <laughs> thing apart and put it back. Cause you could get a five minute hold, I think. And, and I remember Don Marburger was there and I kept saying, look, guys, just calm down. We have plenty of time. Meanwhile, I absolutely knew we did not have enough time to do this, but I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I can't get in here and work on it, so I'll at least talk. And, and so we got it put back together, and uh, then after, the, uh, after we got it back at the house, I said, well, screw it. This is never going to happen again. So I, I, I took all of the bolts, and I put five-minute epoxy on them <laughs> and, and cranked them down as far as I could. I don't, know how they, I don't know how they ever got it apart the next year, but I, was, I couldn't find a Loctite, so I used epoxy. And, and uh, you know, it was like, and again, it's sort of that, we're going to win this thing and, you know, uh, we'll do what it takes. Yeah. I'll, I'll say that the, the idea of being involved in the race itself 
was always, there was such a buildup and so many hours and hours that when you were finally there, you know, you're walking around in the tent, the buggy's ready to rock up on a table. And, uh, you know, you're, you're down to your skivvies because you're not wearing, you know, I only wore long underwear inside the buggy. You're not wearing any clothes that, you know, beyond that. Mm -hmm. it's, so it's cold oftentimes early in the morning and you have no shoes on and you jump, you know, because that you touch the brakes with your uh, stocking, you know, stocking feet. So you're in there and uh, and it, you get locked in and taped down. And uh, so all this stuff is going on, like Ray, <laughs> Ray described, that's going on in your conscience, but not you're, you're not A, involved or B, really sure what the hell is going on. You just know there's just been a five minute hold. Um, so I remember I had forgotten about that. I think blocked it out. Uh, but the thing that, <laughs> that's, that's interesting is being carried you know, then then you're you're carried to the line. All you're doing is looking out the front, right? Well, so imagine you're you're just in this capsule, super ready to roll, you know, and, and you're kind of confident, as Dave said, we were ready. But but the idea of 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 really being on the start line and having that explosive start where and all you see is, is ahead of you, right? And so where we started in the in the lane in the year we won. Um, we often had lane choice. If you were the fastest uh, in the in the role uh, mm -hmm. that was one, two, three to set that that heat, you would get lane choice. We would always take the left lane and you were just a, a little bit ahead of the of the two and three lane because you had a little bit more of a radius at the top on hill two. So you, you, we always like being there because your nose was in front of the other guys. And and so the entire race. I never saw a buggy. They were always behind me, right? And over the top, we were, I saw the video, the, or rather the movie that was taken from the lead car. Mm -hmm. uh, we were over the top, cleanly ahead. We had a super one and two pusher in those years, super fast. And, and that was where we knew if you were over the top and, and had the, the line, line choice in the free roll, that was the best thing you could do. And, and at that point, um, the thing that I remember distinctly every time we raced, different from being in free roll, was that the, those wheels on race day were the best and fastest we ever put on the buggy. So they, the, the impression inside the, the machine was really different than on even on a regular free roll where you were running hot, you were running well, because everything was quieter and smoother. And so the, the the resilience of that rubber on the on the pavement was was so enhanced at that point. The buggy was just smooth as silk, and it and it you know really to me very easy to drive. So I can see the lines I took. I knew where I was going around the curbs, and that's where the buggy went. You know, it sort of went where you pointed it, and the entire thing was uh, was really pretty easy. And and you you can't tell where you are except you haven't seen anybody try to take you. And as long as you're in the front, they've got to work to go around you. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry. So um, basically, if there's no one in sight, you line up for the shoot the way you want to and take the optimum line. And, and the first time you have an impression of what's going on is when you get to hill three and you can start to see the pushers and where they are. You can see where your guy is and you can see how prepared he is to pick you up compared to the other guys. And so, you know, sometimes <laughs> the third guy is standing around swatting flies uh, and, <laughs> and your guy is, is, is ready to pick you up. Right. So you can see 
oh, I've got a good lead or not. You can see two guys getting together right away. And, and the other tell is at that point, when you start to see where your pusher is, you can see whether he's got an inside or an outside positioning. That'll tell you where the number two guy is. Because if he if he wants to, to the, the optimum, if you're all by yourself or way ahead, you want your pusher to be on your left so you can stay real tight to the turn into into hill three. And he's going to basically run straight up the hill and, and merge with you at the right point. Well, unfortunately, if there's a guy in your left that's tight enough that he can't do that or might be, you know, pinching that other buggy, he's got to be set up on the inside, on the apex point. Uh, and you know then that you got a race on your hands because there's somebody probably right next to you, if, you know, if they could be right next to you or, or frankly, even a touch ahead of you and you wouldn't know. Right. Um, so basically you, you, you had to stay tight to the inside without running over the guy, which unfortunately we did one time in free row. I ran over the ankle of one of the pushers and uh, I know uh, George Walsh hurt like hell because, uh, you know, the buggy weighs a couple hundred pounds at that point with me in it and it's going and he uh, he got his ankle in the way. Uh, and, and unfortunately, but but, you, you know, that was the real challenge of having that inside pickup that you never wanted to do because he had to turn and spin then he could not, you know, pace and run along like you could mm -hmm. on the outside. That's the first you knew. And then after that, it was all just where's your pusher? prepared compared to the other guys and and you know luckily that race i remember well every single point i got to an exchange i could see our guy was ready to roll and the other guy was not yet you know we could tell there was that just that gap um and you know we held our we held our lead all the way through that uh that hill five uh hill four hill five exchange and, uh, you know, he smoked them going down the, the, the final stretch. We had really good pushers, you know. So it was the, the all you have inside, which is makes it kind of fun, is you, you have those little clues of where your pushers are and how mm. ready are they compared to the other fellas. And as well, you, when you get near the finish line, there's a lot of people usually. And oftentimes you can see your friends or people that you know that are going particularly crazy. And you, and you figure that that's probably because you're in the lead. And, uh, and, then, and then you find out you don't really know when you cross the line until, uh, you know, you, you get taken away and brake tested and then you find out or people yell at you. Mm -hmm. um, but it, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty intense feelings. Yeah, Gary, you were, you were always at the start line, right? Because you, yeah. were, you were prepping the buggy yeah. because it, uh, as it came out of the tent or the, or the truck or whatever. Yeah. I know I was always down in the chute because I was always listening to the, the broadcast of the race and look and looking for the buggies coming over the hill. And when you see streak in the lead, of course you're excited. Yeah. And, and you know, being being the engineer and setting the buggy up, I'm watching to where Hutch is gonna make that turn in to for, for the chute. I'm I'm watching for the flagman on the you know on, on the uh, sidewalk. And then I'm watching how the buggy comes through the chute and whether or not it's sliding or whether or not it's it's tracking correctly with the Ackerman. And you can really tell a lot standing there how how smooth the buggy is is uh, steering and rolling, because a lot of times with the solid axle buggies, they're sliding around. Yeah. And, right. and standing there watching street come through was was a real pleasure.
because you knew you, you had done the job that you had done the job as well as you could and, and it was working in terms of getting your time and really knowing you have you have won was that something where there is a bit of a delay for everybody to like get on the same page with the stopwatches or did you know pretty immediately? Cause just if, if what I have in my research is correct, it looks like it was only less than a second, you know, between you all and Pika to, to determine that you were the top team this year. Was there any drama related to that? I think there was a uniform timing uh, set up. They, they set up in a, in a, in a spot where they were able to seize the start line and of course hear the gun. And I think it was stopwatches, uh, Will, that they, they would start at the gun and they would have several guys doing it, right? Mm-hmm. But they would start at the gun and they were visually aligned with the finish line. So they would pull it pull it at the finish line. And and basically, I, I don't ever recall that there was huge controversy about mistiming or... Mm-hmm. Uh, or, yeah. or anything. Most of the uh, most of any of the issues that would happen would be because of uh, alleged breaches of uh, of of rules like pacing or mm-hmm. or uh, not making an exchange in a way that you know we we used to be required that a one one the pusher going in the pre- preceding hill would have to be touching the bar on the way in and the the guy on the exchange receiving end would have to be touching it on the way out and now i know they just shoot the buggy through right, they blast it. Day, whether yeah. anybody's touching it or not but that those kinds of things would be the controversial things or if, in fact if there was ever an impeding uh if someone impeded uh touched or uh, or a pusher got in the way of another buggy that would be where the you know everything would light off but i don't recall ever in the four years i was there ever hearing anyone complaining about timing being inaccurate or they were cheated mm-hmm. i'm not sure what the what the accuracy is now but i know in those days it was to the tenth of a second that's yeah. that's and- the only numbers we got you would hear you'd hear 221.2 or 223.1 it was always the tenth of a second. Mm-hmm. That was the only. And, that was the calibration that they had on the timing equipment. And and, and all the the heats that counted, the things that mattered uh, for the final, were all you were running against your uh, your competition head to head. So yeah. you, it was it oh. was clear there was oh, no. Yeah. We didn't we didn't have the you know these guys now. It's just like oh I get to go down by myself. And uh, that's not, oh yeah, that's I had just just that was part of behind the question. So you would have been up against like Pika's A, yeah, the yeah. top oh, yeah. three, totally. the top three were lined up together. Yeah. Then the top and three. then four, five, six were lined up together, yeah. and and it was like you know mano mano. You would you were out there, you guys were right on the hill next to one another, and uh, you were you were going down through the shoot, you know, tandem or triple depending on how tight you were. And that's what you had to plan for as a driver. You had to know what the hell you were going to do if you happened to be, and I, that's what happened senior year when we ended up coming in uh, second was I was behind Sigma Nu going down the, you know, into the chute and uh, had to figure out where to put it and, uh, and how to optimize our positioning. We still, we got close, but uh, you know, that whole idea of being, you know, those three were running on the street together. So it was, and that was, you know, how exciting is that? You know, it's not, you're running exactly. racing the clock. You, the, the, the push and the, you know, the crowd, the pushers, everybody, it, it was, uh, wow. you know, and, no, and I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't change it, man. I think that was the best. You yeah. know? Exactly. I was going to say that's that's something that's missing from from today's uh, sweepstakes is the thrill of three buggies coming down the hill together. Yeah. Because it, in those days, we everybody qualified on the Friday, and the top six buggies ran on Saturday. The four, five, and six ran, and then one, two, and three ran. And one, two, and three were usually really close together in terms of speed. And to stand there and see three buggies coming down the hill, wheel to wheel, that was the essence of sweepstakes for me. Or, or, or pounding up hill five. Yeah, where, where, where a, a, a yeah. fast hill five guy could win the race for you. And, and, you know, we've seen it done. And we had really good hill five guys, uh, you know, my later years, the guys were extremely fast that you really needed that, you know, because, uh, you know, that, that was, you could see the, you could see the enemy. These guys were, yeah, talk about motivated. They were, re everybody really put it out there. But to, have, to Evan's point, I mean, there were years, uh, I'm pretty sure, where I think Pika had to pass beta, uh, maybe both beta buggies, in order to win the race. That, uh, you know, they, they might not have been the first one over the hill, but the driver had to make the pass, uh, a clean pass, on the run to win the race. And to me, there was nothing more exciting than that. Wow. No, that's electric. I did not know. That. Oh, yeah. I'm always learning stuff. So you were crossing the finish line then right before Pika. So, you know, we won. That was it. it there was that the, on Saturday morning, the time didn't matter. The time was irrelevant. You just had to beat the other two buggies in your heat. Yeah. Mm, very cool. Sweet. Yeah. I mean, I guess then talk about that. Maybe that feeling though, when you did win and you see that coming over, do you have memories on kind of, either the award ceremony or that day and kind of the release of like, we finally did it. Um, you know, I did the design presentation and uh, we won design. And I remember going up and picking up the trophy and then going back to the house, uh, carrying the trophy. And then I think I had 12 beers uh, <laughs> and my roommate, Leroy, put me in uh i had a recliner in the room and he, he put me in the recliner and, and put a tin cup in my hand and put a sign around me it says see the drunk 10 cents <laughs> <laughs> to uh build on ray's comment there in 19 in 1971 uh we we won design and i i had made the presentation and that you know at the uh at the awards we were we were given the trophy and I had no idea, but everybody was coming up to me and saying, this is the first first place trophy that Phi Cap has won in something like 33 years. Yeah. And I don't know how much champagne I had poured in my glass that night, but it, it was a pretty... What, what glass? What, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean glass? And, and I, I want to I correct Ray that uh, the 12 beers were just before he started drinking champagne because the tradition, oh. the tradition at the house was um, on, on the award ceremony Saturday. Uh, and in fact, I just saw something in my files here of the schedule, uh, you know, all that stuff happened. Races were over by sometimes by nine, 10 o'clock you were done because there were really two heats on Saturday. The midway went all that afternoon there was all kinds of frivolity and release being mm -hmm. felt because you knew you won 
uh, or not. You didn't know about design. I think the design rewards were right. were kept Saturday until night. The, the night of the. They didn't tell what what happened there, but you knew you won the race. And um, the the midway was just a hoot. Um, you know, like like I'm talking. You know, experimenting with the helium in ingestion so you can scare little <laughs> kids that were standing, hanging out, waiting to play the games. I mean, it was a uh, you know that there was the plank joust over the mud pit thing going on. I mean, the whole the whole atmosphere of relief. I mean, it was a hard working place. If you know, you he may not have been a fraternity guy or a buggy guy, but if you graduated from CMU, you know you got your ass kicked academically mm -hmm. for four years. Sure. So this was one short period where you could just forget a bit all that. And, uh, and really let loose. So people had a hell of a time that afternoon. And basically at the awards ceremony, there was, there was uh, we, we always sent um, telegrams, even in the later years after probably email was invented, we, there, was still, there were still telegrams sent to each of the fraternities and sororities that had placed or won in the design competition in the, in the oh, sweepstakes. No. Or in the uh, or in the uh, booth competition about congratulations from the you know the brothers that Firecap send over you know and the betas would send them to us and it was it was all this cool tradition that that remained and cases and cases of cheap champagne so everybody yeah. everybody had a bottle of champagne after the uh, after the award ceremony so I think we took them over frankly to the award ceremony <laughs> on the years we won <laughs> and and you know you're. You got a huge trophy. One of the trophies, Will, was as tall as me, I swear. One of the years, huge trophy for first place. And a bottle of champagne. Doesn't get better than that. The other, the other interesting uh, connection to Carnival in terms of buggy was, that, as you know, on the Midway, all of the fraternities and other organizations would erect a booth mm -hmm. and compete for a prize on, on the Midway. Let's just say Phi Cap was probably never really in the running for artistic <laughs> capability on, on the midway. We had it. We had a game design where you would roll the ball down the chute into four four squares, and if you got all four colors right, you got the huge prize. If you got three right, a medium prize, etc. But we had three of those lanes set up in our booth. And that booth was clearly designed for one reason only, and it was to make money to pay for buggy. Yeah. <laughs> that was the whole part because you'd get, it was a quarter to play the game and uh, you'd, you'd get kids and adults lined up two and three deep rolling the ball down because it was very easy to do. You know, some, some fraternities or organizations would make these really elaborate, complex booths and some of the games were virtually impossible or, or would take two or three minutes to play. Or they wouldn't work right once they, so they tried to. Exactly. Yeah. In our right. booth, it was it was pretty much foolproof, and those quarters were rolling in. Yeah. Did the thing is that the lanes. Bob Jones. Bob Jones was the booth chairman. Yeah. Right. I remember going down going down to one of the distributors on uh, Fifth Avenue in Pittsburgh to pick up the prizes that we were giving away. And we'd buy two or three of the really huge ones every year because the odds of getting all four colors were pretty small. And uh, we'd have a bunch of the medium prizes. And what I remember is we'd buy them in bulk. We have a couple hundred of these because there were so many people uh, playing the games. And the, the medium prizes cost us 24 cents a piece. 
And the small prizes cost us 11 cents a piece. So the motto in the booth was, when, when you lose, we win. <laughs> when, you, when you win, we still win. <laughs> yep. we, we ended up, we ended up, the thing that was in, uh, really cool about the game, frankly, was that there was a mirror over right. the play area. So it was a ramp you rolled a rubber ball up and then the mirror showed you the playing field where you were trying to drop them into the into these slots. And it was wired. The electrical engineer had determined that when you hit the prize, the lights would go up in a buzzer and also the thing that was great was if you were trying to aim, if you got three of them right and you wanted the fourth one to go, you could see that there was a green one or a blue one in the corner. Well, the problem was it wasn't where you were seeing because of the mirror. So it was impossible <laughs> right. to, to like aim. You couldn't, you, you couldn't aim the thing. It was totally random diabolical. It was terrific. Here's the thing. One year, the, 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 best, the best booth ever was the one where we had these games and we knew that was going to be the center point of the mm. whole thing is to make money for buggy. So the 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 uh, theme for the midway was space. And so the, the, the way the guys did that was they built a box, like literally the crappiest enclosure around these three games with a counter across the front. And then, and it was made of raw plywood and painted with leftover paint, like one gallon of leftover paint on mm. which it was lettered, this booth takes up space. <laughs> and, <laughs> I remember that. And, and they, they, they put that in to judging. And the, the, the guys that were the booth judges didn't think it was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can tell you another booth story. I, I forget what year it was, but we we built a, a booth that was was an umbrella booth. So it had a big, it was all cantilevered and it had a base and we filled it with concrete. So we, we <laughs> so the booth people thought by the time carnival was over, we could just use sledgehammers to break up this concrete. It had set solid. So... <laughs> <laughs> Since Carnival was was later um, in those years, we just put nickels in the parking meters, <laughs> <laughs> or slugs, probably. Right. Until, until school was out, and we walked away from it with a <laughs> parking space, and uh, my <laughs> and Gene said he stopped by school one day and he saw them uh, so the, the green men jack hammering at a park <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah oh, things have changed you know one, one thing i like to ask at the end of every episode is just sort of and we've gotten into you know kind of some of it with in terms of your you know Ethan and or sorry Evan and Dave talking about their their car collections and stuff but how buggy has kind of influenced you in life, you know, beyond CMU and lessons or obviously, right. You're all still yucking it up, you know, almost 50 years later. So friendship's a big one, but, but just kind of things you take away or still remember, or. I think for uh, me, I, there's, for me it, there's more satisfaction in buggy and the fraternity and more learning that probably went on learning that was useful in life. than I got out of my classwork there. 
Um, <laughs> and in particular, back then, this is during Vietnam, so lots of competition. You didn't want to flunk out, and they used to flunk out a lot of people. The teaching was not good quality when I was there. I know they've made a big effort. Most of our classes, at least for me, were taught by TAs. And actually, they were probably better than a lot of the professors that taught. But for me, I think I learned more from Buggy than I, uh, than I did from going to class. Yeah, I'd, I'd second that. And, you know, there, it, there is this, you know, it was teamwork and sort of seat of the pants engineering and uh, just the, you know, sort of the satisfaction of winning um, that really stuck with me. And, you know, the, the, the chem e school was, I don't know, kind of hard, but the professors were really, really good. And, uh, but I still managed to cut most of my classes in the three weeks leading up to spring, spring carnival. But, uh, so I guess I learned that at times you can live on not much sleep. Yeah. He's being and modest. I think, I think he was the number one chemical engineer in his graduating class. So. Yeah. I, it, it was kind of tough to watch him because he, uh, he kind of had a gift for uh, that that end of it. <laughs> I think some of us worked a lot harder, but the results were stellar. I, I think the piece that I took away that I most remember is just the feeling of, like Ray said, winning after all that effort being such a reward and the the egalitarianism, you know, the whole thing was just a bunch of guys that had, that no one had any power no one had any authority. That's a good you, point. It was all it was all learning to influence uh, or or participate in an unstructured situation, which to me is pretty much life. And you know, even in a you know earlier in my career in a big company, a lot of the you you wouldn't be given any power, and you would be given stuff to do. And so, how do you get this stuff done? without any authority. Now, some people never figure that out. They don't, they don't have any um, not influencing skills or, mm -hmm. or, you know, and, and it was just, uh, it was just something that we, we as a group, just everybody had because, you know, how, how, how did the guy that was the house manager get people to clean the bathroom? I mean, come on that, you know, there was, he had no power to get people to clean. <laughs> he could, he could find them 50 cents if they didn't do it. Right. right I mean, it was, right. it, it was all about your, your feeling of responsibility to one another and the feeling of teamwork and, 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 and belonging. So, so having that experience so completely lived for four years, I think took, took uh, it just it seemed to me in in conclusion to, to be just the way it should be done even if you have power over people and you can uh -huh. fire their asses you still shouldn't act like you mm -hmm. can yeah. you should you you know you should be in an environment where everybody's in it together everybody's got something to contribute and um and you can do amazing things beyond what you expect in 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 an, all kinds of competitive pressure uh, with no resources and, and no time, you can still do it if you want it enough, and if everybody gives it, you know, everything they got. I can pretty much uh, echo what all of these guys have said. I mean, the, the the immediate satisfaction, of course, of being involved was the fraternity hadn't done it for decades, and we we were always sort of behind behind the curve or whatever 
we were chasing beta, we were chasing pica. So in order to actually pull together and come through with a victory for the fraternity was the immediate satisfaction and the immediate thrill that you never get over. It's something that mm -hmm. you can never take that away from you because you did it that year. Right. One. From, from a more practical standpoint, I went on to work for Ford Motor Company and uh, I was a suspension engineer for the first 12 years of my career. And so having worked on the buggy and understanding the fundamentals of the, of the suspension and Ackerman steering and whatever was, was kind of a head start in, into my career uh, at, at Ford. And in addition to that, I was also crewing for a guy that raced a Formula Ford in, in SCCA. And working on the buggy enabled me to sort of get organized enough to, to help this guy go through checklists and whatever before we went out on the track to make sure the car was ready before, mm -hmm. before we went into the race. So there were some tangible benefits that, that I derived from, from working on the, on the buggy. And then to, to just reinforce what all these other guys have said, once I got into Ford, the whole essence of teamwork in terms of working with, with somebody to get something done. And, uh, you know, a lot of times at Ford, you had people that weren't exactly team players and you had, you had to, you had to work around that. Yeah. And so the, the experience of, okay, we've got to get this done and one way or another, it's going to happen was, was very useful in terms of making things go the way they should have in, in my career as an engineer at Ford. Once I got up into a, into a management role, you realize you can't force people to do something that they, they don't want. You, you've got to encourage them. You, you've got to lead them. You've got to find the people. And this, this is, I guess, another lesson. We seem to find the people in the house that have the talent to do the specific job that needed to be done. And as a manager, you've got to put the right people in the right job mm -hmm. to be successful. So that to me was, was a big, a big lesson, uh, seeing how things develop at, at FICAP. And of course, the, uh, the big benefit was we actually won. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. So again, thank you so much for, you know, spending your evening. This has been really, really fascinating. I uh, really enjoyed hearing it. Um, if you I, need I anything, say mm -hmm. one thing, really. Sure. The, the friendships we, we formed at this fraternity have gone on for 50 years and yep. it's been a really supportive group over the years. Just, uh, we still get together. We still see each other. We come back to college we visit each other's homes. It's been a, yep. a, a great group to work with. And I, I think that's what attracted us to the fraternity in the first place 50 years ago. And it still does. Yeah. Seeing it, I guess, come full circle or, or what have you, right. Where you're still here on a podcast in 2022 yeah. talking about yeah. buggy is a testament to something. Well, thank you all for joining and listening in. I had a lot of fun with this one. I have a lot of fun with all of them, but a uh, really enjoyable conversation there. Got more episodes coming out every single week up until race day, maybe a little bit after. Uh, if you got topics you would like to talk about, uh, definitely let us know or feedback on the episode. You can go to our Discord at cmubuggy.org slash chat uh, and give some feedback, you know, uh, tell your friends, all that good stuff. Uh, having a lot of fun telling these stories with y'all. As always, I got to give a shout out to Rachel Schmidt, uh, who produces, edits, does 
all the really important behind the scenes work to make this podcast possible, as well as the Buggy Alumni Association for their support. Uh, I'm Will Weiner. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, we'll have some more Buggy stories for you next week on Shoot the Shit.